quick disclaimer. The second story this week gets a bit intense. If you're listening with kids, please check out the post on mythpodcast.com for more info. This week on Myths and Legends, there are two stories from Chinese folklore. On the first, we'll learn some helpful tips for negotiating with dragons. Just give them whatever they want, they're dragons. And on the second story, we'll meet a wingman that actually has wings when a parrot helps two young people find love. On the Creature of the Week, when it comes to making a deal with the devil, you could choose infinite wealth, power, or epic guitar skills, or you could do what this creature did and become a stinky owl monster. This is Myths and Legends, episode 190, Fierce. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today, there are two stories of women from China. On the first, a dragon is rampaging in the wilderness outside of a town, demanding sacrifices from the people. And the only person brave enough to face it is a 13-year-old girl. magistrate trembled as he led the ox out into the field. This, all this, was beneath him, but the last three guys he sent just took off with the ox. They needed someone with true authority. They needed to take back control. In Fukien, in the ancient state of Yu, stands the Yung mountain range. They don't know what woke it whether it was miners who had gone too deep, corruption in the town, or if it was just their fate that it would come to them at this time. But it woke, and here it was. The magistrate had never seen it before, so he was shocked by how quickly it moved. 80 feet long, and seemingly with a blink, it was looming over the magistrate and the ox. The dragon was hungry. It had killed whole groups of men sent to fight it. It ravaged farms and hunted travelers. Now, they were trying a tactic from the old times. A sacrifice. One ox. They could afford that. Whether it was one each month, week, or even day, it wasn't too much to get their lives back. The dragon looked at the offering and sneered, obviously displeased with the sacrifice. Still, waste not. In one bite, in one motion, it consumed the offering and slithered off back to its mountain cave. The ox, left without a master, wandered off into the wilderness. Teen girls! The dragon yelled at the king in his city. I need teen girls, one a year in the eighth month. They need to be 12 or 13, no younger, no older. Send them out to my cave and I will kill them, that's the deal. Don't do that and, well, I keep killing everything else. Dragon out. With that, the king awoke. Huh, how was he going to explain this one to the town? Teen girls, yeah, his advisor said when he called a meeting that morning. They all had the same dream. 
All the men in the city did, at least. And it was approved, too. One person dying each year as opposed to so many more? It made sense from a utilitarian aspect alone. Setting aside the fact that the people group that the dragon wanted to eat, young women, was one with pretty much no power in that society, cultural, political, or otherwise. The guy said that they knew they should be having a lot of other serious talks about human sacrifice, but when you consider the alternative, this is kind of a big win. Guys, this is still human sacrifice, one advisor observed. This is dark, and I, I feel like if we start giving in to the dragon's demands and start sending him young women, we're making a choice that's against everything we stand for. The dragon wins... Br Wait, guys? They couldn't hear him. Over the high fives regarding human sacrifice, for the first few years, to avoid a public outcry, they captured and set aside the daughters of people who had been convicted of crimes. That gave a little bit of an extra incentive, I guess, not to commit a crime. Because after nine years and nine daughters, there were no more daughters of criminals to be had. That put the leaders in a tough spot, politically. Now, they had to organize a lottery so that everyone would perceive things as fair. Because while everyone was pro-giving a daughter to the dragon, no one was pro-giving their daughter to the dragon. Then, Li Chi stepped forward. She was the youngest of six daughters, and she had internalized some stuff, maybe. She explained to her parents, who were merchants in the city, that they had six daughters and no sons, so it was like they were childless. We're about to launch into some pretty strong Confucianism, so buckle up. She would never be able to care for them in their old age, and they would need to give a dowry to marry her off if they managed to marry off her five other sisters. She was only a waste of their good food and clothes, and let's hope that she was saying all this to soften the blow of her volunteering as tribute, and not because she actually believed it, because she said that since she was of no use to them alive, she should give up herself to benefit her family and her city. Her parents looked at her. Yeah, nice try. No, because... Contrary to all those horrible things you just said, we actually love you and don't want you to die. So sit down, and if your name comes up in the lottery, we'll deal with that then. She bowed her head and went to her room. The next day, they were standing in the assembly when the leaders made the announcement regarding who was to go. They said that the young woman actually volunteered. Li Chi's parents looked to her. No, no. <sighs> the leader said her name. She walked to the front of the crowd. Everyone praised her and her family for their brave sacrifice, and the parents, who said that they were so proud of their daughter and this decision that she definitely didn't make unilaterally and lock them into publicly, she had days until the eighth month. But she was allowed access to the young king in that time. She immediately went to work planning. She said, that she needed a sword and a dog. The leaders looked at each other, and then to Chi. That's unnecessary. Her part in this was super easy. All that she needed to do was get eaten. But she said that if she was going, she was going to need those things. The leaders conferred among each other. Did it invalidate the agreement if she took a sword? Oh, the agreement was just a dragon shouting about teen girls in everyone's dreams? They should be fine then. Get her a sword and snake hunting dog. They delivered both to her home. 
where she was found making rice balls with malt sugar. The messenger nodded. Nice. Yeah. Hobbies are a good way to deal with the stress of your own violent, impending death. Anyway, here was the stuff she requested. She took the sword and the leash and shut the door in his face. The morning of the first day of the eighth month, she said goodbye to her weeping family and stopped off at the temple to pray. Then she walked through the crowd cheering her on, thanking her for dying for everyone before they dissipated at the edge of town and went back to work. It was a long, lonely walk out to the mountains, one hand holding the leash and the other holding the bag of rice balls. As she got closer, the dog began to grow more and more frantic, hungry even. Then she saw it, a crack in the mountains, going down into the darkness. Somewhere deep under the earth, it was curled up, waiting for its meal. She had to move quickly. She didn't know what would bring it out. The sound, the smell, the other girls couldn't have been subtle. I personally would be freaking out if I was about to be fed to a dragon, Heck, even if I had a plan to fight the dragon. Chi, though, was ready. She didn't want to take any chances. She would only have one shot at this. She opened the bag of rice balls and quickly arrayed them on the ground, just far enough so that the dragon wouldn't be able to scoop them up in one bite, so he would have to eat them one by one. Then she found a spot just above the opening of the cave. She gripped the dog and waited. It didn't take long. The smell of the sweet rice balls wafted down into the cave and they heard a slithering, scraping sound coming from the darkness. Then he, it, emerged. She saw it sniff the rice balls and hesitate. Come on, take it, take the bait. When she watched its shaggy, horned head take a bite, she breathed. It licked the first one and, realizing that it was delicious, and also maybe that it should branch out and try new foods that aren't people, the dragon slurped up the first and then the second in as many seconds. She realized that she better move. The dog was writhing in her arms, trying to use its paws to break her hands free from its jaws. But even though its claws dug into her skin, she held it. She knelt, making sure the dog had a safe path down the hill to the dragon, and she let it go. Thankfully, the dog didn't start barking until he was on the same level as the dragon, and the creature, immersed in his rice balls, of course, didn't fully recognize just what the animal was doing until it bit into one of the dragon's arms. The dragon reared up to shake the dog away, and Li Chi took a breath. Her path down the hill wasn't the same as the dog's. It wasn't a safe one. She unsheathed the sword and jumped, landing squarely on the dragon's back. The dragon felt the attacker and rolled his dragon eyes. Oh, come on. He tried to turn and snap at it, but couldn't reach her behind his head. Hey, uh, food? Li Chi, Chi corrected. Yeah, whatever, the dragon replied, trying to shake both Chi and the dog off of him. Do you learn the names of the chickens you eat? Get off my back. I'm gonna eat you. That's my deal with the village. Li Chi said that she had come to slay the dragon or die trying. Uh, well, that's not gonna happen, the dragon replied. I can help you out with the second part, though. And tell this thing on my leg, this, like, tiny tooth cow, whatever it is, to stop, or I'll eat it too. Li Chi wasn't listening, though, as she held on to one of the horns amidst the lice-ridden, matted hair of the dragon. 
Ow! The dragon yelled out when he felt the sword Chi wielded bite into the back of his neck. Okay, now I'm seriously going to eat you, but I'm going to take my time. The dragon screamed and, all the more frantically, tried to get the girl off of his back. Chi didn't have any training with the sword, though I imagine that's okay. Fighting one-handed on a dragon's back isn't something that they really teach you. I mean, either you have it or you don't. And if they did, it would probably consist of exactly two points. Hold on tight and stab. And that's exactly what she did. She gripped the horn with nearly everything she had and stabbed with everything else. The dragon, attention divided between the dog that was tearing into its belly and the girl slicing at its neck, twisted. But both Chi and the dog held on. It scrambled and writhed in the dirt, slamming itself and everyone on the ground, but the pair held on, both out of the way of the claws and the bite. The fight was long, grueling, and brutal, and it wasn't a short one. It lasted even longer than she herself thought she could have held on, but she held on, and at the end of it, it was done. The dragon was too deeply wounded on its back and belly, and it came to a rest in the dirt which was now mud with the dragon's blood. All right, I'm gonna level with you. I'm not feeling so great, small stranger, tiny tooth cow, whatever you are. I'm just gonna lay down here for a quick nap. Don't like, don't do anything. When I wake up, you are so eaten. Li Chi was not about to wait for this thing to get its second wind. And when the dragon lost consciousness, she drove her sword down and decapitated the monster. She laid there on the ground surrounded by dragon blood mud, and the sword thudded to her side. It was over. By the time she rose, the snake-eating dog was taking a break. Well, it was kind of a forced break. It really went for it with the 80-foot-long serpent. And she rose and entered the cave. She figured there wouldn't be treasure. She was right. But she would be remiss if she didn't at least check. All she found were the nine skulls, of the girls who had come before her, the nine girls who died. She gathered them up to take them back to their parents, to their home, so they could be given the honor that they deserved. They would have in death what they never had in life. Just kidding. Seriously, according to the story, she picked up the skulls and trash-talked each and every one of them, calling them timid little wastes who deserved what they got for not standing up to an actual dragon. She left them in the cave next to the rotting remains of the one who killed them. She lashed the dragon's head to her back, and alongside the dog who picked off a snack or 40 on their way home, dragged it back to the city. Her family, who hadn't stopped weeping since she left, was overjoyed by her return, and the people were stunned. She was celebrated as a hero, and it wasn't long before the king himself came knocking. He proposed to her, And while I would usually take that to mean that the king declared that he was marrying the young woman, and the young woman hopefully agreed, things were a bit different for Li Qi. When the young woman is the only person to kill a dragon that was threatening your city, well, her agreement was pretty necessary. And she did agree. Qi became the queen. And throughout her life, which was a long one, because she got married at 13, the district was free of monsters.
looking into the background of the story, I did find some info that this tale is set on like the borderlands, on what would be considered the edge of civilization in ancient southern China in the third century BC, in a region where snake worship was more common, thus the sacrifices to the serpent, and Li Qi's slain of the serpent could be seen like Hercules, as a way for humans to assert their dominance over nature and over the monsters of old. There's also been some discussion over the roles of Confucianism in the story. A lengthy delve into Confucianism is way beyond the scope of this podcast, but it was a philosophical system in ancient China. And as it relates to today's story, women were kind of the bottom of the social hierarchy. Li Qi did espouse some tenets that would align with Confucianist philosophy, but it's unclear whether or not it was ironic, because not only did Qi's parents reject her assertions, but the story itself did when the girl bravely faced the dragon and saved her family and city. There are two stories today, and on the next, it's an actual story of love, of loss, and the parrot who made it all happen. But that will be right after this. The maid bowed low before her master. He told her to rise. He had a job for her. He said that he got an exotic new bird. A parrot? He thought it was called that anyway. It talked, but not in the folklore way. But in the more normal way where it just repeated what people said. Uh, Boring, I know. It was now her job to take care of it. That was it. Nothing around the house. No cleaning, cooking, or looking after things. Just her in a room, with a bird. He said that he wanted to keep her safely tucked away, just make sure she stayed the way she was. Because, well, you know. The girl swallowed hard, as one of the master's other women placed the cage in the room. The maid looked to the ground, as the woman, a concubine, shot a look of venom at the girl. She knew. They all knew. The young maid was next and she was old enough. The door closed, and the girl was alone. The maid approached the parrot, and handed it a piece of food. It ate, and when it was finished, stared at the girl. Take good care of me, sister, you'll get a proper husband for it, the parrot said to the waiting maid. The girl shrieked, and almost reflexively, slapped the parrot with her fan. The bird didn't move. The bird looked at her, and then just stared forward. The girl thought that, that was weird. Who had said that to the parrot? The maid settled into a long day of sitting in a room alone with a parrot. Three months later, the girl entered the room and the parrot said hello. It was nice. She had so few friends. Her mother and sister had died young, and she had been taken in as a servant in this household. It started out well enough. She had friends, the other girls in the house, the other servants, and as she got older, she started to see a future for herself. Then, he noticed her. All of her friendships changed after that, as the concubines made it known that anyone who was her friend was not theirs. They had the ear of the master, and while he would never treat the maid harshly who he was preparing for a different type of service, the others didn't have that kind of protection 
Soon, the maid was more alone than ever. So, the burp was nice. It spoke to her, and it listened as she spoke. They were far off from the others in their own little private room, so whatever the maid said remained between her and the bird. Time went on, and she started letting the parrot stay out of its cage. She played games with it, joked with it, and the pair became friends. One evening, the maid said that she would like to take a bath. If the bird stayed out of its cage, could she trust it? The bird nodded, and so the maid disrobed and descended into the bath. She had just relaxed when she heard the tearing, but what was tearing? (gasps) The walls! She leapt from the window and dripped her way across the floor just in time to see a red tail squeezing itself through a hole in the paper. The bird was escaping. She rushed to it, but the tail disappeared just as she reached for it. She couldn't chase it outside, not like this. The bird was gone. In many ways, she worried more about not being reprimanded. She knew that it would only breed contempt from the concubines and the other servants. And her master, her master would treat it like she owed him something. She went to him, downcast, and said that there had been an accident. She had been bathing, and the bird had gotten away. Her master rested his hand on her shoulder. Say no more, he said. He knew exactly what was going on. These women, when would they understand? They were all so jealous. They had obviously set the bird free in an attempt to get the maid to earn her master's disfavor, but there was nothing that could make that happen. Almost nothing. His smile made her shudder, and she was dismissed. After a long week of interrogations around the house as to who had released his bird, the master dropped it, and the girl was reassigned. It was ten days later that she was out traveling. She had been sent on an errand. She guessed to get her out of the house, but she was to carry a message to a nearby matron, a powerful friend of the family. She didn't know this, but the parrot was en route to the same place. How's it going? The parrot said. The young shoe sat up in shock. Was that bird talking? The parrot nodded. Yeah, it it was a parrot. A talking bird, no big deal. Did Leong Shu know what was a big deal, though? The fact that he was a smart, rich, good-looking guy, and he was still single. The bird told him that those days were over, because he had a new, wait for it, wingman. Yes, I know. He should go look out the window. Shu rose, and from his study's window, he saw a beautiful girl of 16 outside, dressed in dark colors and wearing a red skirt. He turned back to ask who she was, but the bird was gone. Shu rushed from the room. They didn't exchange a word that day, but from the moment the maid saw Shu and he saw her, both of them knew that they were the only ones that the other would love. When the maid returned home that evening, she collapsed on her bed. Wow. She couldn't believe it. She was in love. Uh, did I say you'll get a proper husband if you take care of me? Because you'll get a proper husband if you take care of me, a voice from the corner said. The girl sat up with a start and saw the parrot there. 
sitting atop its cage. Of course, you slapped me, so that wasn't cool, the parrot noted. I thought you were hitting on me. The maid was defensive, but beaming. Her friend was back. Why would I be hitting on you? I'm a bird and... uh, Never mind, the bird said. Anyway, the girl had been kind to the bird after the hit, so now it was the bird's turn to be kind. It couldn't carry the girl over the wall to be with him like in one of those old stories, but it could deliver messages between the pair. The maid walked over and opened the cage door, but the bird cocked its head. Seriously? She thought it still needed that? Also, if it came back, what if it was removed from the maid's care? Think things through. The bird shimmied through the unpatched hole in the wall and, peeking its head back in, told the girl to have a message ready for Shu. It will be back in the morning. The girl collapsed with a smile on her bed. She was in love, and she could talk to the man. But then, from the edges, doubts began creeping in. What if a young scholar from a well-to-do family didn't want to marry a serving girl? Or, what if he did? But she was no longer a serving girl. What if she was a concubine? She came back down to earth. Her master. Her master would never let her go. After all of his weird, creepy doting, he wouldn't do something like that out of the goodness of his heart. She wasn't sure there was any goodness there to begin with. The young man, though, did want to marry an ordinary serving girl. The next morning, the maid awoke to a poem from the young man. I care not if your fan be plain. My love is for your face so fair. If we could mount the nuptial bird, we'd soar aloft a wedded pair. The girl sent her message back, and the pair spent each night talking through the bird, falling deeper and deeper in love. Then, a letter. The maid stared at it. A letter. This showed it. This showed that they weren't right for each other. He was this great scholar whose star was on the rise. She, she was a maid. A concubine to be. She couldn't read. She tried to parse out the characters but she hid the paper away. She told the bird to leave. She didn't have a message that night. She only wanted to be alone. The bird slipped out the window and could hear the young woman weeping as it soared on the summer winds. And as it flew through the night, we don't know if it was the rock or the fall that killed the parrot. It was on that summer night that kids... No one in particular, just kids walking along the streets and heading home, spotted the parrot. One grinned and tapped his friend. Hey, watch this. He picked up a rock. The other said that there was no way he could hit that bird. In the sky, at night. He shrugged. Probably. He let the stone fly. And the boys watched in shock as the rock hit the bird's head. And the parrot went limp tumbling from the sky and thudding to the ground somewhere in the darkened field. The boys were still. He he hit it. The others looked at him. He, he killed it. They should go. So they did. They ran home, sickened by what they had done. Ever since the bird had escaped, the other concubines worried about what would happen when the maid entered their number. They had escaped whippings, but only just, and if she was putting them in this position while she was still just a maid, 
imagine what would happen when she was their master's favorite concubine. They had to do something about this maid. It wasn't even that difficult. She had her own separate room. Their master had let her keep it after the bird escaped. And the women simply stood outside it and heard voices. They heard her talking to someone late in the night. And on the night following her weeping, they told their master about it. At first, he didn't care. What did it matter if she had a friend to talk to? But the concubines shook their head. No, he didn't understand. It was a man's voice. The master became incensed. No, not after all the time and creepy effort he had invested into this young woman. She wouldn't be taken from him by another man. She was his. He arrived at the room with his personal guard, and the maid was yanked out of it and forced out into the hall. It was a simple room. The maid didn't have a lot. The master didn't give her much, and she had no money to speak of. She only had an empty cage, a bed, a chair, some clothes, and a letter. She hadn't been able to read the letter, but the master could. Who is he? The maid looked to the floor and wept. The master looked to one of his men, who slapped the maid across the face. Who's this man who has been visiting you? And why does he... The master of the house paused while he read the letter. Want to marry you? You. A man who can write wants to marry one of my maids? She didn't hear the rest of his insults. She had been wrong. It hadn't mattered. The difference in their stations, none of it had mattered. Shu wanted to marry her. That letter became the most precious thing in the world for the maid, as she watched the master hold it up to the lantern until the fire caught. He tossed it to the floor and stamped out the ashes right before her face. He then gestured to his men. Get her up. Take her to one of the more private rooms. He was going to find out who had been coming into his house, even if it killed her. maid shivered on the floor. It hurt to breathe. The master's men, they were cruel. They didn't believe the story of the parrot. Looking back, why would they? It was only the truth. But that didn't matter to them. A young man had been coming into a room in the night and, according to the master, stealing what didn't belong to him. They found the letter and they wanted to know who the man was. Every time the maid said it was the parrot, and every time she was met with a slap, or worse. Through all of it, though, she never gave up the name. She never said it was Shu. She loved him too much to send her master after him. She could bear this. She awoke with a gasp, tied up and on the floor, when the cold water hit her face. She opened her eyes. It was his face. Her master. He was calm now. He said to just give him a name. That was all. No one had been by in the days since she had moved rooms. The young man obviously didn't care about her beyond his nightly visits. Just give them the name, and this would all be over. She would be cut free. She would never become a concubine, not after what she had done. But he would find some menial, humiliating job for her. The maid took a deep breath, but made no more sound. She narrowed her swollen eyes as best she could. 
and shook her head. The master's face warped with rage. Fine. He rose and told his men that it was time. They knew the spot. Others had gone out the night before and dug the hole. It would be a quick trip for them, but make sure it wasn't a quick trip for the guest. He put the gag on her himself, telling her it was too bad it didn't work out, that she would have made him very happy. They gagged her, but they didn't blindfold her, so she could see, in the fleeting shadows from all the different rooms, the others that watched her, her former enemies, the other concubines, the serving girls that would take her place after she was gone, the women the master pitted against each other, so they didn't realize that he was their true enemy. She hoped they saw now this was the fate that could await them all. They tossed her hard into a waiting wagon and rode. It was almost morning when they arrived at the site. It was a lost and lonely place at the foothills of some mountains. There was a flimsy-looking casket and a deep hole. They tossed her onto the ground, and one of the men took out his knife, but his partner lowered the man's hand. Boss said to send her the long way. The man smiled, sheathed his knife, and dragged the maid to the casket. They tossed her in, and it was only as they brought the lid down on the casket that she realized what was happening. She screamed through her gag, but the nails on the lid drowned that out. The men on the outside heard the pounding and the screaming as the dirt piled up. When they were finished, they leapt aboard the wagon and made their way back home. Every night, every night for a week, Shu looked for the parrot, the dark wings that brought word from the one he loved. And every night, he was disappointed. Ah, he knew it. He had gone too far in confessing his love and asking her to marry him. It had been seven days when word came. It had been in the hushed rumors of those working in the house. A girl was dead at the household down the street. She had been seeing some guy. There had been an accident. Everyone understood, but no one said anything. She didn't have anybody. There was no one to say anything. And what happened in a person's household was their business. Shu knew it was the maid. He knew she was gone. Somehow, through all the tears, he must have fallen asleep. Because he wasn't face down on his desk. He wasn't anywhere. He heard a fluttering. And he turned. The bird! But it was a woman. It wasn't the maid, but it kind of looked like her. She was wearing feathers, the same feathers as the parrot. You, you're the parrot, yes, the woman remarked with a smile. The one who belonged to her, Shu ventured, and he remembered. But the woman shook her head. Belonged to her sister, the maid? No, but she had helped the girl. Shu was about to say something else, but he held up a finger. Wait, what? The parrot smiled. Her sister. Her sister was a parrot too, only she didn't know it. She had lived a virtuous parrot life, which I'm not sure what a virtuous bird looks like, maybe just one who makes good decisions about where they poop. So she was rewarded with a new life, that of a human. The maid had been the older sister bird. So 
when she died, the parrot found her. The maid didn't remember much about her old life, but the older sister, the parrot, saw that being human wasn't quite the reward she thought. Some humans treated others worse than they treated animals, so the parrot resolved to help her. She thought that if she could find a good, kind match for her sister, the girl might be safe. And the parrot was right, but she was too late. The parrot died before seeing her mission through. Her sister was in more danger now than ever. Shu hung his head. He knew. She was dead. Then he realized something. The bird woman, woman bird, said that she was in danger. Dead people weren't in danger. They were dead. He looked up with a start. The parrot woman continued. 100 paces beyond the city, there was a mound of fresh dirt. In an instant, he was back in his study, face buried in a tear-soaked cloak. He ran from the room. There was still time. He could still save her. The nuns, who were surprised by someone pounding on their door at three in the morning, were even more surprised by the girl covered in bruises, welts, and dirt in the arms of the young man. He had made it. Whether it was a miracle, or it was because she was small and quickly went unconscious in the coffin because of her injuries, and was thus able to inadvertently conserve her air, Shu made it in time. Of course, it wasn't a hundred paces outside of the city, but there was a nearby hamlet, one by the mountains, whose name sounded like Hundred Paces. And in one version of the story, he actually didn't go straight to the gravesite, but instead got a room at the hotel, sent for a servant, because it was scary to go out in the wilderness and open a tomb, and waited a whole day. I mean, this is a folktale, so it doesn't need to be realistic, but I think making it to the grave one or two hours after she was buried, versus a day or two later, might make a little bit of a difference. He paid the nuns whatever it cost to nurse her back to health and got a room in town. It was over a month before she regained her strength. And the whole time, Shu didn't lose hope. The parrot had been watching over them and he was supposed to save her. His mother came looking for him and he asked her, no, told her that he was marrying the poor servant girl. He took her to the temple where the mother looked down on the girl in bed and listened to her story. She remembered the maid, the girl who had come to see them. She grimaced as she glanced from side to side, evidently worried about being seen here, talking to the likes of her to marry her son. This won't do, the mother said, and made to leave. Shu embraced the maid, the woman he loved. They had been through so much together. They would make this work, even if it meant giving up everything. But well, what are you waiting for? Get up. We need to get out of here, the mother said to the couple. Shu held the maid. He wasn't leaving without her, so his mother should leave. I know you're not leaving without her, the mother said, glancing out the window. That's why I'm telling you both to come on. We're going home, but we need to be quick about it. He could be out there looking for her. Both of them rose to their feet and rushed after the mother.
It was a small wedding, a quiet one, and the mother who had always treasured her son treasured her new daughter-in-law just as much. A powerful woman in the city, she severed all business relationships with the master of the maid's old household. And I like to think that word got around of the man's treatment of the people in his house, as well as the other concubines seeing how the maid was treated, leading to the fall of the man's house. We don't know this though. What we do know was that the maid lived in peace and happiness for the rest of her life. And on his travels, whenever Shu met someone with a captured parrot, he would remember the brave bird who had saved her sister and changed his life. And he would buy the captured parrot and free it. I don't have much in the second story. I personally don't like that the bad guy essentially got away with it, but I do like that this story surprised me with its crazy twists. I started reading it and I was like, oh, okay, a magical animal helps a couple, put it in that pile. But then it died, and wow, she's being tortured. I do like, too, that it ended somewhat realistically and didn't have, like, a classic Grimm Brothers fairy tale ending where someone gets chopped up and then, oh, wow, they got put back together, so now they're alive again because that's how the human body works. Speaking of the Grimm Brothers, that's where we're headed back to next week with an off-the-wall, funny story. We'll be back in Chinese Legends in two weeks, though, when we revisit our old friend, the Monkey King, and see if he's mellowed out after being imprisoned for 500 years underneath a mountain. And spoilers, I guess, he hasn't. <laughs> creature this week is the Strix, from Greek mythology. Now, you might think that bats have the market cornered for malicious, night-hunting vampire creatures. But let me throw the Strix, the Owl Witch, into the running. Sure, the vampire is forbidding and alluring, but does the vampire, like the Strix, only attack young children and, from one ancient Greek source, apparently discharge sour breast milk onto their victims before consuming them? Yeah, who needs an image of forbidding sensuality when the Strix consumes children after spraying milk on their faces? I don't see why the Strix hasn't gotten a movie deal yet. The Strix, which one place describes as a large owl with human breasts, has had a long career. Starting in Greek myth, when Polyphonte and her sons were transformed into creatures because of their cannibalism, Polyphonte had two bear-like sons who honored neither gods nor people and attacked and ate humans on the road. Not nice guys. Because of the sins of the sons, and I guess questionable parenting, Polyphonte was turned into the Strix, one son was turned into an eagle, and the other a vulture. The gods took pity on one of the family servants and only turned her into a woodpecker. Lucky. Things went medieval as the sticks moved away from Greek myth and settled firmly into the Christian faith of the Middle Ages a Strix became someone who turned to Satan and renounced their humanity, and then was turned into a bird that ate babies and lactated smelly milk everywhere. Also, if you're gonna trade your soul for something, I don't know, maybe not that. If you wanna keep the Strix away, it ranges from simple, placing a clove of garlic near your child, to being extremely disturbing to your neighbors when you drag a two-month-old calf to your doorstep, sacrifice it, and leave its entrails out for the owl witches. If you're able to get a Strix, 
its entrails can be read to see who it was before it took that enticing offer of turning into an owl monster. But unless you know of a person who can read entrails and also want to fight a mythical owl monster, uh, just grab some garlic and keep it away. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. And I want to say thanks again to Simply Safe for sponsoring us this week. Simply Safe's got everything you need to protect your home with none of the drawbacks of traditional home security. You can set it up yourself in under an hour, no technician required, and there's no contract, no pushy sales guys, no hidden fees, no fine print, and all this starts at just $15 a month. Try Simply Safe today at simplysafe.com/legends. You get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. There's nothing to lose. Once again, that's simplysafe.com/legends. All right. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>